raise your hand, and uh, someone will be glad to hand one of the few Bibles. Great, we got a couple of folks. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the pastor here, and glad that you're here with us this morning. And we are a church. Um, we are a church that's not particularly or necessarily impressed with ourselves, uh, but we are impressed with our God and what He's like. And so, the very best thing that we can give to you is just to point you to our living God and His. Um, his glory, His goodness, and His Word directs us to that. So we'll be looking at Psalm 123. We're in a series called Songs for the Journey. And these wonderful psalms that are in uh, the book of Psalms, right about in the middle, Psalm 120 to 134, are songs that were written to be sung by God's people as they journeyed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where God's people met God. It's where He dwelt uh, in the temple where he made provision for them in the sacrifices, the bloodshed in the temple, that he might cover their sins and dwell with them. It was a place where they could worship, and it was a place where they gathered together as God's people. It really was um, the Disney World, in a sense, of of ancient Israel, but even better than that, because it was a God-centered place. And so these psalms were written for them as they prepared, as they journeyed there, and as they dealt with the realities of living uh, in this world. And these Uh, Psalms were their songs, but but they're not just their songs. They're songs for us as well. Because all of us as God's people, uh, we are on a journey with the rest of God's people. We are on a journey to our ultimate home to be with the Lord. This life is not our home. There's lots of good things here, yes, but it's not home. And we are on a journey to be with the Lord. And so these Psalms uh, help us on our journey. On our journey, they teach us, they inspire us with truths, and they instruct us how to live on the journey. So as we go through, I trust that you're being encouraged by God's Word. So we'll be looking at Psalm 123 today. This is a psalm that is a a psalm of lament, in that there is uh, the description of of a hard circumstance. But it's also a prayer and a psalm of confidence, looking at the Lord and His answer to Uh, to this particular psalmist problem and for us as well, pointing us that God is the one who answers us in our troubles. Well, let's pray and ask God to speak to us as we look at Psalm 123, because really that's what we're after. God is a living God who speaks to us, and we need to hear his voice. He's glad to speak to us. So let's ask. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 123. We thank you, Lord, for the timeless truths that you've put here, Lord, that when you, uh, when you designated that this would be your word and, and made sure it got into the Bible, Lord, you were not just thinking of the, the original recipients, you're not just thinking of the people through the years, but you were even thinking of us, King of Grace Church, here on June 12, 2011. You are able to think all those things, and you care for us, so we ask you, God, would you speak to us? Would you instruct us? Would you help us to hear from you? Would you change our lives through your word? Would you use me, Lord? I am aware of how great you are and how much you love your people and how wonderful your word is, but also of my limitations. So I ask you, Lord, I thank you for the blood of Christ that covers my sin, and thank you for the grace that you give each of us and you give me to serve your people as their pastor. So help me, Lord, to serve them and to serve you. May we hear you. And go from this place, having heard you, living in your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Psalm 123, a relatively short psalm, a prayer. 
And it says, Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Psalm 123, 1 through 4, God's Word. This brief psalm reflects the cries of God's people as they journey through life and as they face overwhelming difficulties. In the psalm, you can see that the psalmist is really overwhelmed with things that are going on. He's had more than enough, more than enough of scorn, more than enough of contempt. And he's waiting expectantly for God's answer. He knows who God is. He knows that God is great and God is his God. So as he faces these these overwhelming circumstances, these overwhelming trials, he's waiting expectantly for God's answer. And really that's what this psalm instructs us in, is that it teaches us that we, when we are overwhelmed, we can wait expectantly for God's mercy. When we are overwhelmed, we can wait expectantly. We're called to wait expectantly for God's mercy. This, this psalm inspires us, it instructs us in how to live. It instructs us that when we are overwhelmed, we are to wait expectantly for God's mercy. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at each element here of the psalm, the idea of, of God's mercy, of God and who he is and the mercy he gives. And that's really how the psalmist starts He lifts his eyes up to God, the one enthroned in the heavens. He calls him Lord, all capitals, a covenant name, Yahweh. He waits expectantly on the Lord, and he talks about what that looks like, and he talks about his his circumstances. Isn't it interesting to note, actually, that he doesn't talk first about his circumstances? In this psalm, he, he doesn't say, Lord, it's been really hard, life is terrible, let me tell you all about life, and goes on and on. And that's not necessarily wrong to do that, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't start out by saying, I wait expectantly for the Lord because I have all these problems. God, I know you'll answer you. That's great. But he, he kind of reverses the order of what we typically might do ourselves. When we're in life, when we're dealing with things, we, we probably think first of our circumstances, first of the things that overwhelm us. And then we bring those things to the Lord. We pray and we, we say, help us, Lord. And then at the end, maybe we realize or remember, you know what? God is going to take care of this. He's a great God. He, he is powerful. He, he loves me. And we tend to do it that way. Uh, and it's not necessarily wrong to do that way. But I think the order of the psalm actually instructs us in how to deal with life. Rather than following that typical order of circumstances, prayer, and then remembering God, it does it the other way around. God the one who is enthroned in the heavens. I wait on God. I wait expectantly, like a servant looks to the hand of his master. Because I've endured much contempt. So his eyes first are on who God is, and then he relates to God in expectant prayer, and then he remembers his circumstances. So so that is the approach, I think, uh, that we want to grow in. 
And I think when we learn to, when we, when we live our lives to first think of God and then pray to a God who's so great and, and then bring our circumstances, it, it, it shifts our view of the world because we tend to look at the world in terms of what's wrong, what's hard, what our circumstances are, and we define ourselves and our experience and life by those circumstances instead of God. And so this order even teaches us to to think of God first, who he is, what he's like, and then to bring our prayers to him, to bring our circumstances. That may indeed be overwhelming. Well, we're going to kind of do it the backwards way to the psalm. Uh, that's just because we're used to that, and if I did the other way, it might be harder for us to, to follow along. But, but I don't want us to be instructed by my order. I want us to be instructed by the order of the psalm. So uh, here we go, backwards from the psalm. We're going to first talk about being overwhelmed. We're going to talk about being overwhelmed. The psalmist is overwhelmed. He's had more than enough of contempt, more than enough of scorn. He's had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud. Now, we don't know the particular circumstances that the psalmist is going through. Uh, It it, it could have been a number of things. If we read the history of Israel, we, we will see that they went through a lot of trials like this. They went through times where they were treated with contempt. They were treated with scorn. It may have been that this psalm was written uh, during the exile to Babylon, if you know the story. God's people uh, rebelled against God, and for 400 years they strayed and, and, and wandered from the Lord. And, and finally God brought his judgment on them, his discipline really, on his people. He, he brought redemptive discipline. He exiled them out of the land, out of his presence really, to a foreign land, and they were subjugated by a powerful foreign nation, the Babylonians. And they lived there. They were there for 70 years or so, and, and then they eventually came back. And it might have been that this psalm was written by an exile who lived in Babylon. And, and perhaps he, he lived in an area where his neighbors, uh, his neighbors had no regard for him as a person, no regard for God's people, no regard for God. And it may have been that his neighbors were fairly well off, but they, as an exiled people, were not, and they were, were impoverished, and that the neighbors uh, treated them poorly. We, we can learn something about what it was like to live in Babylon as a, as a Jew by reading the story of Esther in the Bible. If you know the story of Esther, Esther was a beautiful young Jewish woman who, was, um, who caught the sight of the king and eventually became the queen under, uh, under a Persian king, Xerxes or Artaxerxes, we're not sure exactly which one it was, but, but this great Persian king, and, and he, uh, she was under him as, her, as his queen. And during her reign, there was this uh, high official named Haman, and Haman was an Amalekite, which were the sworn enemies of Israel. And there's, uh, it's a long story, but uh, Haman basically uh, hated the Jews, and he hated in particular Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle. And Mordecai uh, was actually a very good man, a, a man who cared for his king, the Persian king, and, and, uh, but Haman hated him. And, and there's this wonderful story. It's a masterful, a masterfully told story in the book of Esther of what happens. And um, wonderful irony. I won't, I won't get into the whole story now. But, but maybe Mordecai wrote Psalm 123 at some point. We don't know. As he was being treated with contempt and scorn by Haman, who, who was rich and who was at ease and who was proud. Maybe this is, we don't know, but maybe this is Mordecai's prayer and the prayer of God's people. If you know the rest of the story, God delivered them and brought judgment on Haman. 
uh, in that story. But they were facing contempt. They were facing scorn from those who are at ease. And it, and it doesn't look like in the psalm this is just casual scorn and contempt. The psalmist isn't talking about, you know, when you're driving along and that, that person behind you for some reason hates how you drive and, and uh, is, is unkind to you. Have you ever had that happen? And you, you don't even know what you're doing. What did I do wrong? I don't know. Maybe you're on your cell phone and you did do something wrong. You don't know what you did. Uh, but, but maybe not. And they, and they just hate you and they beep at you and they express their hatred in certain ways that I won't repeat. And, and, uh, and, and there's scorn and contempt. But, but, you know, that's kind of easy to shake off because you don't know the person. And, I mean, they're angry and hopefully you can just say, well, sorry, whatever I did and uh, move on. But this situation is more serious than that. This is scorn and contempt of those who are in a position to really make life miserable for the psalmist. It's somebody in some sort of power over this person, over the psalmist, over the people of God. In some sort of power... And they're exercising scorn and contempt. They're making life really difficult for God's people. Matter of fact, it, it says that, 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 he, uh, that they have had more than enough. It is, it is overwhelming what's going on. So this is not a, a random motorist passing by. This is someone else. This is someone in authority. It's a boss or a close relative or a neighbor or a landlord or, or someone like that. And, and, if, and if you've been in that situation, you understand how hard it can be. And, and I, I think we all are in those situations sooner or later. I was just talking with a friend who, who was under a boss who's just an unjust boss. And uh, that person is my friend's boss, though. And he has to come under that. And it's, and it's difficult. Uh, ever been in a situation like that? A job? A situation where you're, where you're under somebody who is unjust uh, and unkind. I, I, I could share stories. I, I just was thinking as I was doing it, this one little scenario when I was like 12, 13 years old. I was in the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts, by and large, were a wonderful experience. This is not meant to be anything against the Boy Scouts. But my particular troop, uh, there was a pecking order that went on. We had a pecking order that, that we had to live under. And I had got by with that pretty well. And I think I, I might have been more than, I might have been 14, 15 at the time. And somehow, for some reason, I got labeled a jinx. They just, uh, and, you know, Jinx is someone who makes things go bad. Uh, and they just label, I don't know why. I remember a particular situation. might have been the reason that they labeled me a Jinx. I was in the, we had a cabin, and I was in the cabin, and, and one of my troop, uh, fellow troop members was over at the, at the stove, and I wasn't, I wasn't there. I was kind of across the, the kitchen from him, and he was taking up a thing of hot bo- uh, boiling hot water, actually, off the stove, and he spilled it on himself. Uh, he ended up being okay, but he blamed me. He said, I bumped into him, and I was wasn't anywhere near you. Uh, and and he, he called me a jinx, and I got that, uh, that label stuck. And, and so for me to go to Boy Scouts was to be called, was to be called jinx and, and treated this way, and you can imagine it wasn't very pleasant. Um, not quite like the Sama situation, perhaps, but it was hard. People in power, it, it ended up being my, not only my peers, but I, if I remember right, the, the uh, junior leadership called me a jinx, and I lived under that. I, I eventually quit, not for that reason, for other reasons, but that might have contributed to it. Those situations are hard. We can, we can live in those situations. We can find ourselves under the situation where somebody just has it, has it for us. They, they, they label us. They mistreat us, and, and we live under that. And that's the sort of situation the psalmist is talking about. And we all will face those situations. And if not in, in real flesh... We face that situation spiritually, too. To be a believer is to be opposed by spiritual 
enemies, real enemies. Now God's over that. God's bigger than the devil and his minions. But the reality is, is we live in spiritual warfare. We live in, we live in a place where there are enemies of our soul and, and, and there will be things that happen to us that are attacked. And so all of us can relate to the situation of this psalmist. All of us can, re- can relate to living under scorn, living under contempt. And this psalmist, and he, he and the people of God say that, uh, that we have had enough of this. We have had more than enough of this scorn and contempt that, that basically the psalmist is overwhelmed overwhelmed with the situation. He's at the breaking point. They're at the breaking point. They're overwhelmed. So we've had more than enough. We've had it up to here. It's overwhelming. It's not just kind of a little bit of scorn and contempt. This is scorn and contempt that is oppressing them. It, it, is, it is overwhelming them. It is too much. They've had more than enough. Aren't you glad that this psalm is in the Scriptures? Because the reality is, for us at times in life, we will have more than enough of difficulties. We will have more than enough, whether it be someone who's scornful towards us, or just life's circumstances. Maybe just living under the trials of Job. Maybe we'll just find ourselves, for some reason, in trials. The things are not working out for us. Whether it's a job or a family situation, finances, whatever, we will find ourselves at times identifying with this psalmist saying we've had more than enough of what's going on. It's too much. It's too much for me to deal with. And that's what the psalmist is saying. And aren't you glad that this is in Scripture? Because we have this false notion. We have this false notion as Christians that we live under. Can you hand me my water? I forgot my water again. We have this false notion as Christians. Thank you. I keep you from my mouth working. Uh, we have this false notion as Christians that, that there's some sort of contract that we live under. There's this contract of happiness that, that we live under. Now, now we, we wouldn't say it ever this explicitly, but we live under this notion that we have this contract of happiness. And we think this can happen to Christians. It may not dominate everything, but it influences us. We have this idea, this is contract of happiness. If I have a certain amount of faith and obedience, life will be good for me. If I have a certain degree of faith and obedience, life will be good. And it's funny, we usually think that certain degree is right around the degree that we presently have. Uh, There's some people, they've got a little too much, they don't have enough, but I'm just right. Uh, I've got a certain level of faith and obedience, at least when we're doing well. And therefore, life will be good. Life will be good. Things will go well if I obey, if I do what I'm supposed to do, if I have some level of faith. And, and, and what we expect is that, that, uh, that, that life will go well. We'll have maybe good health and, and a steady job and obedient children and, and, and harmony. And when those things don't happen, we say, Lord, what are you doing? I've believed you. I've obeyed you. Why is this happening to me? We have this idea that this is contract. This is contract for happiness. And what this psalm teaches us is that that isn't the case. There are times in life when things will be overwhelming. 
they will be overwhelming. You will have more than enough of trial at times. And we have to understand that. Because we can create this false Christianity that is about being happy and and well off and everything going smoothly. And we, we think that to be a Christian means I have to be under the contract. I have to be successfully fulfilling my end of this contract and having a life that's together. And if my life isn't together, I better not tell anybody because that must mean that I'm not fulfilling my end of the contract. I'm not obeying. I'm not believing. And so we put on a smile when people say, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing well. And, and, and we don't communicate really what's going on, that we're overwhelmed, that things really stink. That life currently stinks. It's hard. It's overwhelming. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand that? Do you understand that impulse that's there to, to put up this facade? And I don't know where the idea comes from. I, I don't know. I, I, I believe part of it is the fact that, indeed, as we follow the Lord, there is blessing and there is good things. There are good things in life that go on. And yes, To some degree, when we believe and obey, there is blessing, there is prosperity, but it's not guaranteed, and we can't control it. certainly didn't work that way for Jesus, did it? And he says to follow him is to follow in these same footsteps. This much blessing, and I don't mean to to be morbid and say it's all trials. Uh, God is glorious, and he's good, and his glory fills the earth. There's lots of good things out there, but, but life can be hard at times. You guys have probably seen the whole line of clothing and bumper stickers, life is good. You guys know that? Um, And I don't actually have a hard time with that. There is much good about life, but it's just not the whole picture. Life is good. Maybe the bumper sticker should say life is good and then parentheses, but it really stinks sometimes because that's reality. That qualifier needs to be there. And as Christians, we need to understand that qualifier is there. Now, there's truth that operates above that. So there's a way to deal with that reality that, that is God's way to deal with that, not the world's way. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand that life will be overwhelming at times, we will end up doing all sorts of weird things. We will, we will wear a mask. We will mar- wear a mask with others. We will portray a facade. And we will, we will do really weird things to hide the reality of our struggles from people. Things get really warped when you do that. Or, or we'll, we'll run to, uh, to certain things to make ourselves feel better. This Christianity thing isn't working. I've got to try something else. I've got to, I've got to try uh, some sort of outlet. I've got, to, I've got to try drugs or alcohol or sex or all those things. There's all sorts of things that you'll go to if you live under this idea that there's this contract and life must be good. Actually, sadly, for some people, they deny the faith because of this. I didn't sign up for this, Lord. You mustn't exist. Because if everything doesn't work how the contract's supposed to work, it means you're not there. If I, if I believe and obey you and, and then don't get what I want, you're not there because this is, this is how it works. And, and God's Word says, no, it isn't how it works. You don't follow God so that you can get Him in a contract to, to do everything you want. You follow God because He's worthy of being followed. He alone is the one to determine the course of our lives. He alone is all wise and all good and perfect and trustworthy. That's why we follow him. And he is amazingly merciful and loving and kind. And that's where this psalm goes. We're going to get there. So thank God for this psalm. 
that, that reminds us of the reality that at times things are just overwhelming. Just overwhelming. So that, that we will be overwhelmed. There will be situations in life where we cannot figure out what's wrong. We cannot figure out what's going on. There will be situations where we cannot handle them. There will be temptations that go on that seem too intense to endure. There will be disappointments in life. There will be disappointments in life that seem irreparable. Part of the reason for midlife crises is because people don't deal with this reality. Things don't always work out how you thought they would. There will be disappointments. There will be failure. There will be things where you're just perplexed. And Psalm 123 teaches us that that's okay. There is an answer for it, but it's okay. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know how God's going to work this out. I feel overwhelmed. There's nothing I can do. I don't have an answer immediately for this. That's okay. That's where the psalmist is. The psalmist is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the contempt and scorn that he and God's people are living under. It's more than enough. And so what does the psalmist do? He, just, he doesn't just live in there. He doesn't run to a false thing to find some false comfort. He looks to the Lord. He looks to the Lord. He waits. They wait expectantly. And it's wonderful. This is a, this is a poem a song, uh, and, and, and so you can see repetition and elements of, of a song here. And so the, the, kind of as the, the psalm flows, he says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the, hand, to, to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The picture of, of a servant, of servants, looking to the hand of their master, or a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. Now, they use uh, the picture of slaves or servants. And in Scripture, uh, just sometimes that throws us a little bit when we see servants. The word servants used here, it's uh, correctly translated slaves as well. We think of historic American slavery. It's not like that. Um, there are differences. Uh, the slavery in Scripture, it, it's... Uh, it was not racially or ethnically based. It was not lawless slavery. It wasn't, at least it wasn't supposed to be. And it wasn't necessarily permanent. It was maybe more like indentured servanthood, what we'd understand as that. Nevertheless, the picture here is of the person who is in the dependent position as a servant, a manservant or a maidservant, looking. Their eyes are on the hand of their master. Their eyes are fixed on the hand of their mistress because they know that they live under the authority of their master and they know that, that their master is the one who dispenses what they need. And without their master's hand, without the hand of blessing, they have nothing to receive. And so as the eyes of a servant looks to the hand of the master, so the psalmist says, our eyes look to God. It's a wonderful word picture, uh, perhaps, more meaningful for, uh, for them under that system. But I think for us, understanding uh, indentured servanthood and so forth, I, I thought of uh, Charles Dickens and uh, his stories. I love, I love Charles Dickens' books for the most part. 
And, I, and I've read one over and seen one over and over again, and that's a Christmas carol. You probably have too, and, uh, but I, I still enjoy it. And there's one scene that, that, that's uh, among many that are poignant. Uh, I think we have a picture to show. Uh, I love the scene of old Fezziwig. Uh, Fezziwig, uh, so Ebenezer Scrooge goes back and he revisits the scene. And Fezziwig was, uh, was a, someone who owned a business who Scrooge and his buddy, I forget his buddy, Mar- no, it wasn't Marley, it was someone else, lived under uh, as apprentices under this guy Fezziwig. And he he's, goes back and Fezziwig is this just wonderful master, a wonderful boss who loves his employees. And these are guys working under him as apprentices. They are indentured servants. He could do whatever he wants, but he, this guy is benevolent. And he throws this wonderful party, and, and, uh, and Ebenezer enjoys the party, and then is thoughtful. And he says, I have it in quotes there, he, he says of Fezziwig, he has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. Ebenezer is recognizing this man made life wonderful, and he had it in his hands to do that. That's what the psalmist is talking about. The the master over the servant has in his hands, has in her hands, the ability to make life for that servant a blessing or difficult. Another word picture, maybe that helps. Uh, we have a golden retriever. Her name is Daisy, uh, and she's a wonderful, lovable, uh, aging, very overweight golden retriever. And 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 she just loves to please. And and she does all. And someday, if you come over, we'll do all these tricks. Uh, but if you when you go to do tricks, she's just, her eyes are fixed on you. And if you have a treat in your hand, she is doubly ready to do anything for you. Her eyes are fixed on you, looking at you to do your bidding. Luther said of his dog, uh, the same sort of thing, he said, oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. He had a morsel in his hands. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. That's what the psalmist is saying. Our eyes are on you, Lord. And apart from you, we have no good thing. Life is overwhelming, God. And so the only answer, the only answer I have is to look to you and to wait on you to dispense grace, to dispense favor, to have mercy. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's looking to God, and he's instructing us as well. When we are overwhelmed, what are we to do? We're to be like, like Luther's dog, looking to the Lord. Lord, help. I need you. I wait on you. And there is no answer apart from you. You see, the temptation is to go somewhere else. The temptation is to find our own answers. The hardest part for most of us, I think, is the waiting, is it not? And we look to the Lord, but then if we don't get it right away, we look somewhere else. We are, we are Veruca Salt. Daddy, Daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa, and I want it now. I want the answer now. I want deliverance now, Lord. I'll look for a minute, but then forget it. I'm, going, I'm moving on to something else. And yet God has designed waiting for our good. He's not... He's not asleep. 
This psalmist is not dealing with a God who falls asleep on the job. And just somehow he's just got so much going on. Like, oh, yeah, oh, sorry, oh, I forgot you got that situation I, you asked two years ago. And I forgot about it. Well, okay, we're going to see what we can do now. That's not what's going on. God himself is sovereign and has designed the waiting and calls us to wait expectantly. There are probably lots of reasons that he does this, that he designs waiting. I think one of the things is that waiting is probably better than, than many other things at exposing the idols in our hearts. It causes us to, to, to react and to, to, it exposes our idols because when we have to wait, we think, oh, I'm moving on. And what do we move on to? We move on to our idols. We move on to the things that we think will deliver, will deliver us. And, and they could be idols of comfort. They could be idols of power. They could be idols of success. They could be idols of other people. They could be idols of relationships. They could be idols of, of alcohol and drugs. They could be idols of, of, of sex and sin and other things, whatever they might be. The waiting exposes what we're really looking to and what we really believe will deliver And, and waiting causes us, it instructs us, it trains us to treasure God more than anything else. To treasure His person and His, His blessing more than anything else. To wait for it. To say it's worth the wait. Now, now this, this operates in life all the time. If you think about it, uh, uh, think about maybe just a picture, uh, maybe this has been your experience, you are at work and it's like 4 o'clock and you skipped lunch and you're really hungry. You're really hungry. Your stomach's grumbling and you've got another hour of work and you're not sure, maybe you can make a visit down to the fridge and you get a phone call from your spouse. Honey, I, I uh, went out and I bought uh, a bunch of really nice cuts of steak uh, for tonight and, uh, and we're going to cook them. And I actually have this whole, I got on Food Network, and I got this whole seven-course meal designed for tonight. And I'm going to be cooking it. There'll be dessert. There'll be the finest wine. There'll be all these wonderful things to enjoy. But it won't, we won't, I won't have it ready until about 6.30. Um, and you're thinking at that point, okay, what do I do? If you're like me, you're thinking, okay, can I make it till 6.30? Uh, and, and the temptation at that point is to say, well, I mean, it sounds really good, but I am really hungry here. I am really starving. And, uh, and you kind of weigh, do I go down and get those Twinkies out of, out of the dispenser with the, with the Coke? Or do I wait? How many here have got the Twinkies with the Coke before? I have. Peanut butter and jelly. Then you go home and you're not, I mean, the meal just doesn't count as much. You might not even eat much of it because you're stuffed with Twinkies or something else. That's a picture for us of the reality of waiting. And God has gourmet meals for us. But sometimes we have to wait through an empty stomach. And those seasons of a, of, a, of a hungry stomach may last days or months or years or even a lifetime. Because Scripture says us that, tells us that the meal, the ultimate meal, is the meal at the very end. That is the one meal that's guaranteed and will be amazing. And, and we will have to wait for that. That's the ultimate meal. Now, God is gracious in our lives to answer us as we go along. I don't mean to say that's the only thing he does, but, but we don't know those things are not guaranteed, but that meal at the end is guaranteed. And he calls us to look to him in our situations of being overwhelmed and to treasure him and his answers so much that we are willing to endure the empty stomach and not gorge ourselves on Twinkies in the meantime. 
He wants to train us in treasuring Him and His answer and waiting and putting our own fleshly desires or maybe legitimate desires secondary under Him. That's what the waiting does. It trains us. It instructs us in what we really operate in as our God. Is our God something else? Is it some sort of Twinkie thing? Or is it God Himself? And this psalm instructs us to wait patiently, to wait expectantly, to wait for the Lord's answer when we're overwhelmed. To look to His answer. To wait on Him because He is far better than any other alternative. He and His answer is far better than any other alternative. And that's what goes on in the psalm. We see the psalmist knows what God is like. So he starts out saying, To you I lift up my eyes. To you I lift up my eyes. I lift my eyes up to you, the one who will bring the answer, the true answer, the best answer. I look to you, O you, who are enthroned in the heavens. I look to you, O God, You are enthroned in the heavens. You are the God who is is sovereign and great and rules over all things. And you are the God who is sovereign over my situation right now. You are sovereign over my circumstances. You are sovereign. You are in in control over these things that I feel like are overwhelming me. You are bigger than this. You are the one enthroned in the heavens. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to remember who you are, that you are able to deliver me. You are able to strengthen me in it. You are able to bring the short-term answers, and you will bring the long-term answer. You are the one who's enthroned in the heavens. I look to you. That's why I can wait. That's why I can be attentive and expectant because of who you are. You are the God who's enthroned in the heavens. And he uses God's name throughout here as well. So our eyes look to the Lord our God, and we've talked about this in these Psalms. It's capital L-O-R-D, all caps. It's, it's uh, the name Yahweh, which is the, the personal name of God that he gave to his covenant people. It's the name of God that describes who he is. I am the one who exists. I am the eternally existent one. It, it not only describes him, but it's a special name for his people. So when the psalmist is using God's name, it is, it is saying a lot. This is a, a holy name. Actually, modern-day Jews won't even say Yahweh. They say Hashem, the name, or Adonai, which is Lord. And that's the pattern in the New Testament, too. Is, is, this is translated Lord. That's why our Bibles translate it that way. But the word in Hebrew is Yahweh. And it's the name of the covenant God. So he's saying, not only are you mighty, not only are you sovereign, not only are you the one who's enthroned in the heavens and over all this and fully able to deliver in your time, but you are my covenant God. You are my God. You are our God. We are in covenant with you. We belong to you. You belong to us. We have this relationship, this covenant. And it's, a covenant is a solemn agreement. It's an agreement that, 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 that is to be lived out. And, it, and for the psalmist, he would have been under the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Abraham as well as a believer. So this is a, a cry to our covenant God, and it's important for us to understand that, that, that we, we, have this, we do indeed have a contract with God. It's not this contract of tit-for-tat happiness. It's a covenant with God that we, that we are His covenant people. And the covenant that we have is not the covenant of Moses, the covenant of Abraham, but really the the fulfillment of all those covenants, the covenant of grace, the covenant of Jesus Christ. We relate to God as His covenant people. That means He has a, a solemn agreement with us that He will not break. 
And we live under that covenant. That covenant was accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful covenant. It's an amazing covenant. It's a covenant of grace. Grace means a a freely bestowed favor. Not earned, but bestowed freely. This covenant of grace is a free covenant. It's free. It's free to us. And and it's, it's free, but it doesn't come cheaply. We don't have to pay anything for it, but it comes at great cost. It's a wonderful agreement whereby as we look to Jesus Christ, repent of our sins and trust in Him, all of our sins are forgiven. All of our sins are covered by the blood He shed on the cross. And His righteous life has been offered to the Father, so we are accepted in His stead to the Father and counted as if we were Jesus in terms of our righteousness. That's amazing. It's a free covenant, a covenant of grace. And when we repent and believe, when we are included in that covenant in Christ, God is At that point, our covenant God, He's a God who's made a solemn covenant with us in Christ that He will not break. He cannot deny His name. He will fulfill. And all the promises in Scripture that go with that, such as working out all things for our good and bringing us to that ultimate wedding feast, are guaranteed. And so we have a covenant with our God through Christ and His life, His death for us. He has shed His blood. God the Son. God became a man and lived the righteous life and fulfilled the covenants, the previous covenants, fulfilled them, obeyed the Father in every way, and then amazingly went to the cross voluntarily to suffer and die and pay for your sins should you choose to receive this covenant. He offered up His life. It satisfied the Father. It fulfilled all things. He died And then on the third day, he was raised again to life to say, to in a sense ratify the covenant. It is established, it is done, it is valid. And it it is in effect because the Son has been raised to new life. And all those who trust in him will experience the forgiveness and the new life that he has. What we're called to do is to respond to that. Why? Why should we? Well, there's lots of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is we're in a lot of trouble. Apart from that covenant of grace, we are not in covenant relationship with God under Christ. We owe God our lives. God made us, each and every one of us. He made all things. He has prerogative over our lives. He is God. And whether we know it or not or believe it or not, it is a fact. We owe Him our lives. And the sad reality is is that... in all of our lives, in each of us, we have rebelled against God. We have this insane disposition to live life apart from the God to whom we owe our very lives. And we need in every way. And in His holiness, He can't let that go. He must deal with it. He's a just God. And so the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. That we live currently in death if we have not come to Christ. We are in death even now. We are separated from God. And that situation will, will be uh, finished and eternal should we go through this life without ever receiving the terms of His covenant, repenting of our sins, trusting in Christ. We will be under God's holy justice, His holy wrath forever. So this covenant is offered to us. It's offered to you right now. If you have not responded to this invitation, it's offered to you right now. The Bible teaches us that God speaks through His people, and I believe God is speaking to you right now. The covenant is offered to you. And all you need to do is say, Lord, 
I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to rebel against you. I'm sorry for my sins. And I receive the blood of Christ that covers and pays for my sins. Thank you for my forgiveness. I want to follow you as my king. You just can express it that way. I would love to pray with you afterwards if you'd like to pray. And I know there are other people here as well. To receive this gracious covenant for you. So that you can, in life's ups and downs and the difficulties of life, pray Psalm 123 and know that this is for you. Ultimately, if you are not God's, this psalm is not for you. You don't have the confidence to go before God and to have an answer. Now, he's gracious. He, he does answer those who call upon him. But, but th- this promise that's here isn't for you unless you receive what he's given in Christ. He is a gracious God. He's a mighty God. He is for us as his covenant people. He's granted us this covenant of grace. If the band could come up as we close. The psalmist is looking to the Lord, this mighty God who's enthroned in the heavens, who is his covenant God. He's looking to the Lord in his situation of being overwhelmed. And he's crying out and he says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. He's looking. His eyes are on the Lord until he has mercy. He is looking for grace. He's looking for mercy. He's waiting on God. And as his people, we can pray the same thing because we are his and he's gracious and he's powerful. We can wait on him and he will answer. He's a powerful God who is gracious and active. It is a wonderful thing to have powerful people that take a liking to us, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to have friends like that. I recently, uh, a year ago, was at at Fenway Park in the very best seats I ever had in my whole life. Uh, I, I don't know, I've been maybe 20 times my whole life. They were on the third baseline, right behind the press box, and uh, right on the first row. It was great. It was for, uh, this was two years ago, Dice K's uh, inaugural game. I was there. If you're a baseball fan, you uh, hopefully are appreciating this, this uh, story. I could never have gotten those seats. I had a friend, I have a friend who has a friend uh, who works for works for marketing groups and uh, I think Major League Baseball, who got those tickets for us. And we had this wonderful experience right there in the front enjoying the game. It is wonderful to have powerful people who like us. In the Lord, we have the most powerful one who likes us and loves us infinitely. And so in our overwhelming circumstances, we wait on Him who will answer us, who is fully able. We may have to wait and be trained in the waiting, but he will answer us. Psalm 123 is a wonderful psalm that teaches us that when we are overwhelmed, we can wait expectantly on God's mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can wait expectantly. Lord, would you teach us to wait? Lord, that is often the hardest part, to wait on you. Would you teach us to so look forward to your answer that is good and pure and right and to trust you in the circumstances, in the process, that we will wait on you. May we be like Luther's dog, looking at you and waiting and crying out. And Lord, not only for our own lives, but for the lives of those around us as well. Or would we use 
the place we have in your kingdom to pray for our neighbors who don't know you and, and are overwhelmed and don't have the, the guarantee of your grace. May we be merciful in praying for them. May we seek you. May we be people who wait expectantly on you to answer and to pour out your grace. May we honor you with the waiting and the asking. And, oh God, would you answer graciously. Would you bring glory to your name and blessing to your people. We pray. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand as we respond to the Lord.